Section 23 of The Bible Under Trial This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ron Altman The Bible Under Trial by James Orr the Bible, the hope of the world. It was remarked in the first paper that the best proof of the inspiration of the Bible is the spiritual effects which it produces. These are of a character writ large on the page of history. Moses extolled the unique privilege of Israel in having, quote, statues and judgments so righteous as all this law, unquote. Deuteronomy 4, verse 8. Psalmists celebrate in glowing terms the spiritual power of God's law in converting, enlightening, sanctifying, comforting, and guiding the soul. Psalms 1, Psalms 19, verse 7, 11, and Psalm 119. Paul counts it the chief privilege of his nation that, quote, they were entrusted with the oracles of God, unquote. Romans 3, verse 2. The same apostle declares that the Old Testament scriptures which Timothy possessed were, quote, able to make wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, unquote, and that as inspired of God, they were profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, quote, that the man of God may be complete, furnished completely unto every good work, unquote. Second Timothy 3, verses 15 to 17. The New Testament scriptures have since been added to the Old, and we have now in our hands a complete Bible, Few will maintain that the inspiration of the New Testament falls beneath that of the Old, or that the spiritual powers its teachings exert are less wonderful than those of the earlier scriptures. The claim made for the Bible is one that can be put to the test. The Bible influences the world through the many-sided revelations of God's character and will it contains. It specially influences it through the historical image and the moral and spiritual teaching of Christ in the Gospels and through the hopes, promises, exhortations, and motives in which the apostolic writings abound. We speak with gratitude of the profound influence which has been exercised on the world by Christianity. But it is to be remembered that Christianity only comes to men and is kept alive in their memories and hearts through the Bible, through the possession, translation, diffusion, and devout and prayerful reading, preaching, study, and teaching of the written word. Without the Bible to revert to, keeping the truth fresh and living, the image of the Master would long since have been blurred and distorted beyond recognition. 
his gospel would have been perverted beyond recovery by corrupt human tradition. His doctrines and moral teaching with those of his apostles would have been buried under a mountain load of human inventions. It is not, therefore, an exaggeration to say that it is the Bible which has preserved Christianity to the world. If, as we believe, the religion of Jesus is the hope of the world, it is the possession of the Bible conveying and maintaining the knowledge of that religion which makes the hope possible. In saying that Christianity is the hope of the world, and that the Bible is the hope of the world, we use nearly equivalent expressions. Part 1. A powerful argument for the divineness of the Bible might be drawn from a simple comparison of the Bible with the sacred books of other religions. There is a large group of religions in the world which students of the subject are accustomed to designate book religions. This for the reason that they possess like our own sacred books or scriptures. Such books are the Hindu Vedas, the Parsi Zen Avesta, the Tripitakas and other sacred writings of the Buddhists, the Mohammedan Koran. Whatever light of wisdom or gleams of truth about God and duty such books contain, and we need grudge to them no real gems of this kind they possess, there is, as every candid judge will be ready to admit, no true comparison between these ethnic scriptures, even at their best, and the collection of writings which we term preeminently the Bible, the book. Whether regarded as literature, as history, or in the message they convey, the unique superiority of the Bible stands out unchallengeable. Take the Bible, for instance, as history. It is the simple fact that there is nothing that can be properly called history in these other sacred books of the world. They are, as every student of them knows, for the most part jumbles of heterogeneous material loosely placed together without order, continuity, or unity of any kind. There is no order, progress, or real connection of parts. The Koran, for example, is a miscellany of disjointed pieces loosely placed together, arranged chiefly in order of length. The Bible, on the other hand, is a history with a beginning, a middle, and an end, a history of revelation, the history of a developing purpose of God, working up to a goal in the full-orbed discovery of the will of God for man's salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. There is nothing like this, nothing even approaching it, in any other collection of sacred books in the world. As distinctive in its character is the message of the Bible. The Bible is not a book of mere secular wisdom. 
though much secular knowledge is embodied in it, not a book merely of grand thoughts about religion or of theories and speculations about divine things, not a book simply of fine ethical teaching, of noble biography, of soul-stirring narrative. It is, as just said, preeminently a book of revelation, of God's historic revelations down through the ages to the coming of Christ and the advent of the Spirit. These revelations form a series. Each adds something to those which went before. Each carries the course of revelation a little further. Each foreshadows a yet richer development in the future, and when the whole is before us we see in it the unfolding of a great purpose which has its consummation in Christ and his redemption, a purpose the very character of which is the guarantee to us that it is the purpose of God, not the thought of man. Part 2 this imperfect glance suffices to show the uniqueness of the Bible and the inestimable treasure we possess in it. We are now to see how the Bible verifies its exceptional character and claims by its history and influence, and by the blessings it confers. It is not too much to say that the Bible, regarded simply as a book, has had an unexampled place in history. Its authors were not learned men, as the world counts learning, yet their writings have been preserved, read, copied, translated, and spread abroad to the utmost corners of the earth as no works of philosophers or sages, poets or orators, historians or moralists, have ever been. Take the witness of manuscripts. While of some important classical works only one manuscript is known to exist, and ten or fifteen is thought a large number for others, few of these dating beyond the tenth century of our era, the manuscripts of whole or parts of the New Testament are already reckoned by thousands, the oldest of which go back to the fourth and fifth centuries, and parts are still older. Or take the test of translation as a mark of this book's influence. It is no uncommon thing for a popular book to be translated into many languages. Here again, however, the Bible has a record which casts every other into the shade. The books of the New Testament had hardly been put together in the second century in what we call the canon, before we find translations made of them into Latin and Syriac and Egyptian, and by and by into Gothic and other barbarous tongues. In the Middle Ages, notwithstanding the discouragements put upon the possession and reading of the Scriptures, 
we find translations made into nearly all the leading languages of Europe. With the art of printing, the work of translation received a new impetus. Today there is not a language in the civilized world, hardly a language among uncivilized tribes of any importance, into which this marvelous book has not been rendered. Whatever men may say of decay of faith in the Bible, it is, as remarked earlier, the undeniable fact that its circulation in the different countries and languages of the world today outstrips all previous records. The reports, for example, of the three great Bible societies, the British and Foreign, the American, and the National Bible Society of Scotland, show for the year 1905 the enormous total of over nine million of issues of the whole or parts of the scriptures in European and heathen lands. Every other test we can apply to the Bible yields a similar result. No book has ever been so minutely studied, has had so many books written on it, has given birth to so many commentaries and works of exposition, has evoked such keen discussion, has founded so vast a literature of hymns, liturgies, works of devotion, has been so determinedly assailed, has rallied such splendid defenses as the Bible. Why do I mention these things? Not merely for their own interest as facts, but as proofs of the unconquerable vitality which resides in this book of the universal appeal it makes to human hearts, and of the need of ascribing the power it exercises to some higher than natural cause. Genius alone in the writers, even if they were allowed to take rank as men of genius, would not explain it. What boasts are sometimes made of the genius and scholarship ranged against the Bible? Yet, as I said at the commencement, the Bible holds on its career of conquest unchecked, while the works of its assailants, after a generation or two, often much less time, lie on the shelves unread. These books have no message to the world, as the Bible has. The Bible is a book, as experience shows, for all races, and it has this character because, like the gospel it enshrines, it goes down beneath all differences of rank, age, sex, culture, to that which is deepest, most universal in man. It bears translation into all languages, because the language of the deepest things of the soul is, all the world over, one. This vital penetrative character of the Bible, attesting its divine quality, shows itself not simply in the place it holds in history, but in the unexampled character 
of the influence it has been enabled to exert. To tell what the Bible has been and done for the world would be to rewrite in large part the history of modern civilization, to retell the story of Christian missions, including those which brought the gospel to our own shores, to extract the finest qualities in much of our best literature, to lay bare the inner springs of the lives of those who have labored best and most for the moral and spiritual well-being of their kind. Trace back to their springs the great movements, the great struggles for civil and religious liberty, in our own and other lands, the social and humanitarian movements which were the distinction of the past century, the sources will be found ultimately in the high mountain levels of the Bible's teaching. And say what men will, it is the Bible which is the source of our highest social and national aspirations still. I shall return immediately with more particularity to the proof of these statements, but I may here cite the witness of one who will not, I think, be regarded as unduly biased in favor of the Bible. I mean Professor Huxley. Secularist and agnostic as he was, Professor Huxley on more than one occasion expressed himself in very remarkable terms on this unparalleled influence of the Bible. Here is one of his latest utterances. Quote, Throughout the history of the Western world, unquote, he says, quote, The scriptures, Jewish and Christian, have been the great instigators of revolt against the worst forms of clerical and political despotism. The Bible has been the Magna Carta of the poor and of the oppressed. Down to modern times no state has had a constitution in which the interests of the people are so largely taken into account, in which the duties, so much more than the privileges, of rulers are insisted upon as that drawn up for Israel in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Nowhere is the fundamental truth that the welfare of the state in the long run depends on the uprightness of the citizen so strongly laid down. Assuredly, the Bible talks no trash about the rights of man but it insists upon the equality of duties, on the liberty to bring about that righteousness which is somewhat different from struggling for rights, on the fraternity of taking thought for one's neighbor as for one's self." Unquote. Here is another passage. Arguing in one of his essays for the reading of the Bible in the schools, Professor Huxley bids us consider, quote, that for three centuries this book has been woven into the life of all that is best and noblest in English history, 
that it has become the national epic of Britain, that it is written in the noblest and purest English, and abounds in exquisite beauties of mere literary form. Unquote. And he asks, quote, By the study of what other book could children be so much humanized and made to feel that each figure in that vast historical procession fills, like themselves, but a momentary space in the interval between two eternities and earns the blessings or the curses of all times? according to its efforts to do good and hate evil, even as they also are earning their payment for their work. Unquote. Are not statements like these the best reply to such strictures on the narrowness of the Christian ethics as we had before us in a previous paper? Can a religion be really regarded as inimical to political freedom, to duties of citizenship, to education, to patriotism, which produces results like the above. Part 3 Let me now trace a little more in detail some of the actual blessings which the world owes to the Bible. For practical purposes, the influence of the Bible and the influence of Christianity are, as I have said, convertible ideas. It will be convenient for me to speak first of what the world owes to the religion of Christ in a temporal respect, on the plane of moral and social benefit, then of what the world owes to it in a spiritual respect or in regard to its eternal hopes. There are, I know very well, and we are never allowed to forget it, two sides to this picture. Deeds have been done in the name of Christ and of his official church, which reflect eternal dishonor upon humanity. It is a dark picture the historian has to draw of the abounding corruption, the dead formalism, the gross immorality of certain ages of the church, of the frightful evils of the periods of Roman and Byzantine ascendancy, of the spirit of intolerance and persecution directed against heretics and unbelievers, and often against Christ's own faithful witnesses, when truth had to be confessed in peril of the dungeon and the stake, of superstitions like witchcraft, of the feuds and divisions of churches and sects, of the moral blots, the inconsistencies, the festering sores of vice and misery of our so-called Christian civilizations. We acknowledge it all, and blush in the acknowledgment. To dwell on such things is the stock in trade of the anti-Christian agitator. But in this he is unjust. A fair mind will always distinguish, or try to distinguish, 
between effects really due to the spirit and principles of Christ's religion, and the false and perverted readings of that religion given by those who had nothing in common with its spirit, and made it too often the engine of their own temporal ambitions. Much human infirmity and folly must be stripped off if we are to do justice to this religion as it lies before us in the Bible. Mr. Blatchford's formerly quoted words, quote, If to praise Christ in words and deny him in deeds be Christianity, unquote, is not the definition we would accept of Christianity. To Christ himself we appeal, as against the people who deny him. If, then, we look to the gospel as it came forth in its purity from the lips of Christ himself and of his apostles, what do we find it teaching? What ideas did it communicate to the world? I look at the subject first as proposed from the standpoint of moral and social benefit. To understand what the religion of the Bible has accomplished, we have to think of the kind of world into which Christianity entered. It found a world in the last stage of dissolution, in a state of utter decrepitude and decay. The old religions had lost their power, and with religion the foundations of morals were well-nigh universally loosened. Dissoluteness flooded society. Even duty to the state, the one duty that was held supreme, was breaking up in all directions. There was little sense of individual right. In the family, for example, the father held all power in his own hands, and wife and children and slaves were subject to his absolute authority. Infanticide and exposure of children were common and recognized practices. The social structure was built on slavery, and slaves had no protection of any kind. Work was held to be beneath the dignity of citizens who, if not possessed of wealth, claimed to be supported by the state. The favorite amusements of the populace were the sanguinary spectacles of the amphitheater. Marriage had fallen into such disuse that, though the emperors set a premium on marriage, people could hardly be induced to enter into the bond. Worse than all, heathen society had not within itself, nor was it able to find, any principle of regeneration, for religion had lost its hold. The moral codes of the philosophers were without sufficient sanction, and there were not those ideas of the dignity and worth of the individual which could create any noble or sustained efforts on his behalf. Noble examples of virtue, no doubt, there still were, friendship, piety of a sort, family affections, 
a deploring on the part of the better spirits of the evils they could do nothing to check or subdue. But ancient civilization had played itself out in both thought and life, and had not a spring of renewal from which recovery could come. What now did Christianity bring to this effete and corrupt and sinking heathenism? It brought, for one thing, a totally new idea of man himself as a being of infinite dignity and immortal worth. It taught that every man, as made in God's image and capable of eternal life, had an infinite value, a value which made it worthwhile God's own Son dying for him. It taught that no man was worthless in God's sight, that every man, however lost in sin, was redeemable, and that no efforts should be spared for his redemption. It brought back the well-nigh lost sense of responsibility and accountability to God. It breathed into the world a new spirit of love and charity, something wonderful in the eyes of the heathen, who looked on in amazement as they saw institutions growing up around them such as paganism had never heard of. Institutions for the care of the poor, the orphan, the aged, the helpless, the fallen, the leper. That wealth of charitable and beneficent institutions with which Christian lands are full. It flashed into men's souls a new moral ideal, and set up a standard of truth, integrity, and purity, which has acted as an elevating force on moral conceptions till this hour. It restored woman to her rightful place by man's side, as his spiritual helpmate and equal. It taught care for the children, and created that best of God's blessings on earth, the Christian home. It taught the slave his spiritual freedom as a member of the kingdom of God, gave him an equal place with his master in the church, and struck at the foundations of slavery by its doctrines of the natural brotherhood and dignity of man. It created self-respect and a sense of duty in the use of one's powers for self-support and the benefit of others urged to honest labor, and in a myriad ways, by direct teaching, by the protest of holy lives, and by its general spirit, struck at the evils, the corruptions, the malpractices, and cruelties of the time. In all these, and in numberless other ways that cannot now be mentioned, Christianity as impartial investigators recognize, entered as a revolutionizing, regenerating, and renewing principle into that ancient society, and produced effects which have borne fruit in the new world that has sprung up on the ruins of the old. 
End of section 23.